27 to 40. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible if you have one. If you use a pew Bible like I'm using, you can find it on page 827. So go ahead and turn there. This is an interesting passage. Uh, Jesus kind of fielding a question from the Pharisees about the resurrection. Um, it's kind of an in-the-weeds, uh, like really kind of random, almost weird question about theology. Um, one that you, you know, that you would probably hear in a, like in a lunch table at a seminary or something like that. Kind of really, uh, you know, I mean, so I, when, when, I, when I went to seminary, so I went to seminary and I worked at an Apple store, at an Apple retail store at the same time. And uh, I, don't, I don't mean this as an insult, but pretty much all of my time spent either, uh, almost all of my waking hours were spent kind of in this bubble on campus at seminary or in this bubble in this, uh, you know, Apple retail store. And I was pretty much surrounded entirely by nerds, <laughs> by, by uh, you know, uh, either theology nerds on campus at seminary or technology nerds. Uh, on, on campus at the Apple Store, a lot of know-it-alls, a lot of people that like really, you know, took pride in knowing all the answers and being the first one. You know, you'd walk into a break room at Apple and you could ask a question to anyone, you know, whatever, how many gigabytes are there in a whatever, MacBook or iPhone or whatever, and everyone would stop what they were doing and kind of, like, there was like a contest who could shout the answer the loudest and, like, it was on Jeopardy or something. Same thing with, you know, you're in, on seminary, ask a question about some random point of theology or, you know, some, the latest, you know, thing about some celebrity pastor or something, and everyone had their two cents that they wanted to volunteer, everyone kind of, uh, you know, knew what they thought about that that thing. That's kind of what G- Jesus is is kind of uh, he's accosted today by a, a know-it-all nerd like that by the by the Sadducees that want to ask him the specific question. But what we're going to see as we look through it is that it is um, less. The question is not exactly sincere or authentic, like they really want to know the answer, but rather it is an argument uh, kind of framed as a question. Right? They're trying to trap Jesus, discredit Jesus kind of build a case for their particular theological hobby horse. And they're using this question to kind of kind of do that. So uh, I'm going to read uh, Luke 20, verses 27 to 40, and then we'll, uh, we'll spend a few minutes thinking together about what it has for us to, to learn. It says, There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children... Then the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for her brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the the first took a wife, but then died without children. And then the second and the third also took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. 
for they no longer dared to ask him any Lord Jesus, we uh, long to be, we aspire to be uh, people of, uh, of the book, people of your word, people who rally around, gather around your word, and who read it, and who listen to it, and who care about what it says, and who want to be... Uh, careful that we believe right and true things about you and who want to be obedient to you and who want to sit humbly under the authority of your word. We ask, Lord, that you would give us that spirit this morning. Lord, uh, each of us has this, this tendency in our hearts to want to you know, stand uh, over your word, right? To, to accept or reject your word uh, on, uh, according to our desires. And we ask instead that you would soften our hearts and give us a spirit of humility that we would let your word speak to us and form us and help us and sanctify us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. It's the first time, uh, this is the only mention, actually, of the Sadducees in the book of of Luke. We've met all kinds of religious leaders as we've kind of journeyed over the last 20 chapters together. Uh, Pharisees, chief priests, high priests, scribes, elders, lawyers, teachers of the law. First sighting is like a, you know, like the... uh, Bigfoot, right? It's the first sighting of, of a Sadducee. Uh, and the Sadducee was, was, Sadducees were one of three kind of main, uh, like, theological groups or kind of, uh, you know, parties, as it were, uh, in, uh, in Second Temple Judaism. So, so right around the time when Jesus came in the first century, it was known as Second Temple. So uh, Second Temple Judaism kind of, the first temple was built by Solomon, uh, around 1000 BC, 957 BC, uh, lasted uh, for several hundred years until the Babylonians invaded and destroyed the temple and sent the people into exile. So then there was no temple for several uh, decades until the second temple was constructed under the, the kind of direction of these Persian kings, Cyrus and Darius. And so it was kind of like this weird time where the temple was largely seen as the, the outworking of God's promises, God's covenant blessings. God spoke to our father Abraham. God has, has kind of held our nation in the palm of his hand. He's taking care of us. And, and now the temple, which was supposed to be the, the manifestation of all of God's faithfulness and his promises, has been destroyed. And then it's rebuilt. But all those questions kind of still linger, right? Is God real? Can we believe in God? If God is real, then how could our temple have been destroyed before? Uh, if it was destroyed before, what's going to stop that from happening again? Uh, how do we know that God is faithful? How should we worship God? Now that we're beginning to return from exile, how do we worship God and be faithful to his word in the context of kind of this pluralistic society where the, the civic leaders that are over us are not uh, faithful to God? Those are all the questions that were kind of, you know, are kind of swirling around among the people of God. And there were uh, three kind of main camps that kind of emerged to answer those questions. First of which we're all uh, probably the most familiar with, which is the Pharisees. They get the most mentions in the Bible. And they were kind of the really rigorous party, right? 
They believed in the whole, the entirety of the Old Testament, all 39 books of the Old Testament. They, uh, they, in addition to that, they had a book called the, the Talmud, which was kind of a, a big book of commentary, essentially, on how to interpret the Old Testament. They thought it was really important to obey all of the rules and all of the laws in the Old Testament, take it very seriously. And they had all of these like rituals and processes that they would kind of go through to make sure that they were doing it. That here's the law, and then we're going to put uh, rituals and man-made uh, you know, laws around the law to make sure that we don't uh, accidentally get too close to the law and accidentally break it. We'll have extra laws, that, that kind of thing. Of course, the Pharisees, as we see in the New Testament, their obsession with keeping all of the law and the ritual purity within the law, uh, they, they, they would often neglect some of the weightier matters of the law, right? Matters about the, the heart. So they would end up, uh, you know, justifying and condoning divorce and the exploitation of, of women and children and elderly people. So they're really strict on some things, but they missed, uh, they missed the, the mark completely on some really important heart-level matters. That's the Pharisees. Next is the Sadducees, who we meet here in this text. They get less mentions than the Pharisees. They're mentioned about a dozen times, as opposed to the Pharisees, which are mentioned about a hundred times. Um, and they, unlike the Pharisees, are just super chill, man. Like, really, you know, loosey-goosey, you know, don't take yourself too seriously. Like, they, they rejected much of the Old Testament. They only held to the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The rest of the Old Testament, they rejected it. The Talmud, they rejected it. Um, and so, naturally, a lot of the uh, laws and doctrines that they felt were not taught in the Torah, but maybe they expressed themselves more in the rest of the Old Testament, they rejected them. So uh, the, the, the sovereignty of God and God's kind of uh, you know, ability to, to orchestrate all of human history according to his plan and his design, they rejected that. They're big uh, advocates of, of you know, human autonomy and free will, kind of like the Calvinism and Arminianism debate today, they would kind of side with the Arminians. Um, but they also rejected a lot of other really important uh, core doctrines. They didn't believe in the resurrection, like we see in this uh, in, in verse 27 here. They just think that you die. Once you die, there's nothing else. You're just gone forever. So, yeah. Oh, are we, are we out? Of... Oh, good point. I think I'm muted. How about this? We're good to go now? All right. Sorry about that. So we had, we got, hopefully we, hopefully we still got, got most of that. So we have the Pharisees, the rigorous party. We have the Sadducees who are kind of more uh, loosey-goosey, kind of just, you know, rejected much of the Old Testament and kind of went from, from there. The third category is the uh, Essenes, who um, we actually don't see mentioned at all uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. The Essenes were... Um, they kind of lived in these, in these, we didn't know much about them until uh, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, several decades ago. And, and scholars believe that the Dead Sea Scrolls were largely talking about the ASEAN communities. But yeah, they lived in communes, they shared everything together, they worked and contributed. You know, it was kind of like the, right, like everyone works according to their ability and everyone, you know, is given according to their, to their need. Um, so it sounds kind of like hippies, but they were big into like, uh, moral purity, and they had a lot of very rigorous laws. So maybe more like the Amish or something like that is kind of a, a decent uh, modern-day equivalent to the Essenes. But those are the three: Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. The Sadducees are who are in view here, and they, like I said, denied the resurrection. 
I had a teacher when I was a kid, like a Sunday school teacher or something, they're like, this is how you can remember the Sadducees. They denied the resurrection. They don't believe in heaven or eternal life, so they are sad, you see. <laughs> yeah. So, Sadducee comes up to Jesus. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, then that man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That's true. He's pulling that from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. Um, we also see this, uh, this law kind of in, in effect in the story of Onan uh, in, in the Old Testament as well. But Deuteronomy chapter 25 uh, reads, If a brother dies and has no son, uh, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The first son whom she bears shall, su- shall succeed to the name of his dead brother and that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So here's the, this was kind of like, um, you know, life insurance in, in, in ancient Israel, right? Uh, women were very vulnerable and men had all the power. Men had all the resources. If you're a male, you had your whole life, you could work, you could earn, you could provide, a lot of options, a lot of freedom. If you're a female, you had very few options, very little ability to provide for yourself. Really, the, the main thing that you had was your ability to marry someone and, and have, have children, right? And they would kind of exchange that for uh, a man committing himself to her, taking care of her. And then ultimately, hopefully having a male child who would then take care of her in her old age and perpetuate the family name throughout Israel. So, uh, if, if a woman got married to a man and then he died without having a son, then she was in an even more vulnerable, more precarious position than she would have been at first because now she is uh, less able to marry someone else. A lot of, lot of men uh, were, you know, not inclined to marry someone who'd been married to someone before, didn't have a husband, didn't have any sons. She was just particularly vulnerable. So the rule was, if you have a brother, if you die without a son, you have a brother, then that brother is supposed to marry uh, that woman. And it's, you know, it's not all, I mean, he's, he's still, he can have two sons. I mean, theoretically, he could, he could have the first son is really his brother's son. Right, it, it gets his brother's name and his brother's resources and his brother's land can be handed to that person as an inheritance. And then the second son is essentially his firstborn son, if that makes uh, makes sense. So that's kind of their plan. They took it very se- and here's how seriously this plan was enforced uh, in Israel. Starting the very next verse in verse seven, it says, "If the man does not wish to take his brother's wife." Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. Right? Encourage, hey, don't do that. Right? You have to be a good man. Be a good brother. Be a good brother-in-law to this woman who now needs someone to help her. If, but if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go to him in the presence of the elder, pull off his sandal, of his foot and spit in his face and she shall answer and say so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house and the name of his house shall be called in israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off uh shoes um, uh, in, in ancient israel you would take your shoes off as a sign of grief if you're mourning in the time of a funeral so this pro- process is kind of meant to represent um grief and sadness at this man's disobedience and his selfishness the fact that he would rather leave this woman 
uh, into, in a very vulnerable position rather than, than, be, than take the initiative and take care of her. Where also, shoes were also a sign of power, right? Uh, you know, virility. Men, men were big and strong, and they worked outside, and if you're going to work outside, you have to have shoes. So if you don't have shoes, you're basically, you know, if someone takes your shoe, they're basically saying, you're not a man. You are a, a wuss. You're a punk. You're, you're selfish. You're, you're not taking responsibility like God has called men to do. So that's kind of the precedent. That's the case law. So this Sadducee comes up to Jesus and says, let me give you this hypothetical. Now that we all agree on that law from Deuteronomy 25, let me give you this hypothetical scenario, right? You've got one, uh, you've got seven brothers. One guy marries a woman, he dies. Brother two marries a woman, she di- he dies. On and on and on through all seven brothers. And then finally the wife dies. So, which so with that being the case, who which of them is going to be the who is going to be married in heaven? Is it the is it the guy number one? Is it guy number seven? Is it somewhere in the middle? And the point, the reason why they're asking this is because uh, this is like an absurd. This is an absurd like scenario for them to consider, right? Um, they it's not inconceivable in their culture for a man to have multiple wives, assuming that he could provide for all of them. Uh, but it would be ridiculous to think of a woman having multiple husbands, because how would you know whose uh, sons, be- like how would you know which uh, kids belong to which fathers? And and you know, the, it just it just kind of was inconceivable for them. There, there's the patriarch, and and he would take one wife ideally. But if he does take multiple women, I mean, he's, he at least we all know who the father is. We know who the mother is, and we know who's taking care. Like all of the responsibilities kind of line up, and they're easy and neat and understandable. But they had no category for the idea of a woman having multiple husbands at the same time. So this question is meant to say, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. There's no way that a woman could possibly have multiple husbands. And so in his mind, in the Sadducee's mind, he's thinking, therefore, there's no way that the resurrection is real. Right? It's kind of uh, ridiculous and it's, it's absurd. But um, the reality is, like, the Sadducee is not asking this question because he cares about this hypothetical woman or these hypothetical men, or not because he's concerned about like what happens if this situation happens in the future. How do we arbitrate it? How do we handle it? He's asking this question because he doesn't believe in the resurrection and he wants to prove to Jesus that there is no such thing as the resurrection. And he wants to do it publicly. He wants everyone that's in there hearing to know that he pinned Jesus to the mat. He proved that the resurrection is not real, that eternal life is not real. And he wants everyone to know how, uh, you know, smart he is and how right he is. Uh, in, in the years I've spent as a pastor, uh, it's what I found is that most, if, if people come to you with a, like a random kind of theology question out of the blue, uh, and more often than not, it's because they have skin in the game. They have something that they have, they have something they're trying to prove or some behavior, right? If someone comes to you and says, um, I want you to like. I want you to prove to me from the Bible why it's uh, wrong or sinful to sleep with my girlfriend, or I want you, you know, like let's 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 like spar about this like matter of theology. Chances are he's not just curious. Chances are that person is, you know, sleeping with his girlfriend, or at least he wants to, right? Um, and so, so this Sadducee comes up to Jesus, right? Uh, ha- what are your views on the resurrection? How about this hypothetical situation? What would happen in this? Uh, case 
Because he wants to, be, wants to be right. He wants to prove that Jesus is wrong. And he's using this scenario as an argument, as, as leverage to prove his, his point. Right? Obviously, we know that no woman could have seven husbands. Obviously, that means that eternal life could never happen. Obviously, that means the resurrection isn't real. It's false doctrine. And I want to prove you wrong in front of everyone. The question maybe sounds innocuous or curious or innocent on its surface, but it's anything, uh, it's anything but that. He wants to be right. He wants to, oh, everyone to know how right he is. It's amazing how, how the human heart is kind of designed that way, to always want to be right, always want everyone to know how right we are, how little we listen to others, and how much we love to speak and kind of be vindicated in, in public. So, hypothetical question, designed to trap Jesus, designed to destroy his credibility, and Jesus responds in verse 34, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. They can't die because they're equal to the angels and the sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So Jesus uh, kind of says, all right, I'll play your, I'll, I'll kind of, Allow, I'll, I'll run with your premise for a moment or two to see what you, what you think about it, right? Let's, let's take your scenario about this made-up woman and these seven made-up brothers. Let's game it out. Let's think together about what would happen. Who would she be married to in the age to come? And the answer is no one. She won't be married to anyone because no one will be married in heaven. Angels are in heaven now. Angels aren't married to anyone. We see, a number, we see a number of angels throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, two of them, we, we see two of them mentioned by name, Gabriel, the, uh, uh, the, the one who you know, God sends to speak to, to Daniel and who uh, comes to Mary to tell her that she's going to give birth to Jesus. We meet Michael, who fights these spiritual battles on uh, Daniel's behalf. But you never see an angel show up with his wife and kids, Right? in a minivan, like on their way to angel soccer practice. And they're like, hey, just wanted to swing by a quick detour, give you some divine revelation from, from God, and then we're going to go off and kind of finish. You were going to, you know, go have our family dinner together. Angels don't get married. They don't have kids. They don't have family responsibilities or obligations. They kind of have a singular path, singular responsibilities to, to do the business of God, to kind of do his will, to deliver messages for him. And Jesus says, when you go to heaven, it will be like that. Your life here on earth is occupied with a lot of things that it won't necessarily be occupied with in heaven. Cultivating your relationship with your spouse, discipling your kids, raising them, teaching them, growing in heaven. Uh, Ever news in heaven is going to be fully grown, fully matured. They're not going to need discipleship. They're not going to need for you to take care of them. We're going to kind of be standing shoulder to shoulder before God, and we're going to be occupied by Beholding the glory of God, enjoying the glory of God, experiencing God in this unmediated relationship, worshiping him, living a life full of excitement and fun and joy with him. So we won't be married to our spouses in heaven. We'll we'll, we'll interact with them. We'll see them. We'll know who they are, but we won't be married to them in the sense that we're married now. Uh, John Piper wrote a book called This Momentary Marriage, uh, which is about that, that whole thing. Right, you, you kind of first time I saw it in the bookstore, I thought that's a little strange. Right, I thought the whole point of like maybe this guy's like saying that divorce is okay. Like why why would you like identify mo- marriage? Marriage is forever. Why would you identify it as something that's momentary? Um, 
And his point is, from building from this exact passage, that marriage is for the entirety of a person's life. You get married, you're married to your spouse until one of you dies. But after one of you, like it's for the entirety of your life, but that only this life, right? No, it doesn't kind of persist on into, into heaven. And if you zoom out, if you take your 80 years on this planet, 90, 100, whatever it is, you zoom out and look at the next billion years, the next trillion years, the next trillion, trillion years, then the hundred years that you spent here in this life married to your spouse is going to seem largely momentary. It's going to seem like a very short amount of time compared to all of eternity. And so he calls, he calls marriage momentary based on this, this text. Now, um, if you're married and you love your spouse and you love spending time with them and you love being married to them, then this can seem a little depressing, a little discouraging, right? You kind of like the thought of always being with your spouse and maybe spending eternity in heaven being married to your spouse. And so this idea that marriage is only for this life is not all that comforting. It's kind of disconcerting, but it's not meant to be, right? This idea of marriage being for this life, but not necessarily for eternal life is not meant to be um, discouraging or disconcerting because the institution of marriage itself was is is intended to be a means to an end. It's intended to be uh, an institution that points forward to something else, something better, something greater. Marriage is not intended to be two people uh, come together and then they live this life curved in on each other, right? Thinking about each other, all of their joy is derived from each other. They're totally happy and glad and fulfilled and contented and satisfied in each other. That might be the way that some marriages, some, frankly, some of the better marriages uh, between non-believers look. It's two people curved in on each other, trying to uh, encourage one another and serve one another and derive joy from one another. That might be how the world understands marriage, but for believers, marriage is intended to be a relationship where two people come together and they're not curved in on one another, but their, their attention, their focus, their worship, their gaze is directed heavenly, heavenward toward God. They're not centered on each other, they're centered on God. They don't think only about each other, they think about God together. Their joy and contentment doesn't come from each other, their joy and contentment comes first and foremost from God together. And so in that sense, uh, not being married in all of eternity doesn't mean that we're going to lose out on joy and contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment. It means that we're going to have all the more of those things because we're going to be experiencing it directly from God instead of experiencing a shadow of it in our spouse that is intended to point to our relationship with, with God. Marriage is not an end in itself, it's a means to an end, and the end is God and the gospel. God designed marriages to help spouses be better Christians, love God more, worship God more, obey God more, right? Marriage is intended to be a representation of the relationship between Christ and his church. Jesus is the faithful, self-sacrificing bridegroom who loves and serves his bride and gives his life for his bride and never leaves his bride and covenants with his bride and is faithful to her for all of eternity. The church is the bride of Christ who is presented to her husband without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish, who loves and submits to her husband and enjoys his faithful protection and provision for all of eternity. The, the, the one marriage that is not momentary, the one marriage that is 
by definition, eternal is the marriage between Christ and His people, the church. And our marriages here in this life are intended to reflect that one, to point forward to that one as a means to an end, as a shadow of the reality that is Christ and the church. So when the substance comes, when the reality comes, the shadows disappear. Kind of like how the people of God in the Old Testament offered sacrifices in the temple, slaughtered animals to kind of uh, represent the appeasing of God's wrath. But when Jesus died for sin and God's wrath was actually uh, atoned, uh, there was no more sacrifices that needed to be offered. Jesus had offered the final sacrifice once for all. So an eternity, uh, uh, eternity is not going to be worse because we're not married to our spouse. It'll be better because we'll get to enjoy the glory of Christ and experience our relationship with him alongside of our spouse in a way that's... That's why Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 2 that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no heart could ever conceive the glorious things that God has prepared for those who have trusted in Christ. So you won't be married to your spouse in heaven, but heaven will be... Uh, just infinitely better than this life is here and now. And that's Jesus' answer to the, to the question. He says, this is, how the, you know, this is how that situation would theoretically play itself out with this uh, one man, or this, this one woman and these seven men. But Jesus is not naive. And he knows, he knows the question or the, the, the argument that kind of lies beneath this this person's question he knows that like this sadducee doesn't really care at all about uh this hypothetical person this hypothetical woman and these seven hypothetical men he knows that jesus er, he knows that the sadducee is speaking uh to discredit the idea of um of of a resurrection right he's using this question to build his his case and so he says look i know what you're really asking about so let's dispense with the formalities, let's deal with the issue at hand, and let me prove to you from the scriptures that the resurrection is real, right? And that eternal life is a real thing, which is what he does in verse 37. Let's hop back to Luke chapter 20, um, verse 37. He says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for all who live, live to him. So this is kind of pulling from Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is wandering around in the wilderness. Uh, he comes upon a, upon a burning bush, and God calls out to Moses out of the burning bush. He says, Moses, I am the, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. All right, so that's who God is. Currently, Right now, at this moment, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in case there's any ambiguity about that, in case maybe you think that God got the tenses wrong, and maybe he was meaning to say, I was formerly the God of Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob, but now I'm the God of you, Moses, and all the people that are there with you uh, who are currently enslaved uh, in, in Egypt. In case God maybe got his tenses wrong, we see some more clarification a few verses later. Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, Moses? Like, prove to us that you actually heard from God and that he actually sent me to you. What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. 
the, the word I am is, uh, is kind of the English rendering of the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. And it's kind of a, it's almost, it's almost an enigmatic name to try to understand and figure out what it means. The best approximation that we have for, for what Yahweh means or what I am means or why Yahweh is translated as I am is because it means that God is a pure, unadulterated existence. God is the God that exists. He has always existed. He will. God by de- God is the exister, the existing one. It's kind of what Yahweh means, right? God is essential. His existence is everything else is uh, dependent, right? Everything else was created. There was a time when it did not exist, but then God created it and so that it did exist. But God is, uh, is, is not contingent on anything. He is essential existence. He just is. God, God is isness, right? God, God is and it's not that God always was and God always will be, uh, so much as it's that God always is. There's no such thing as past or present or future for God because he just is emphatically, essentially, for all time, before time, after time, God is. And that's what the name Yahweh means. I am the existing one. And so God says, I am presently the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am has, has sent you back to the people. But the catch is, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have been dead for hundreds of years. So how can God be their God right now? Right? I can understand that God was their God back when they were alive, but how can He be their God presently, currently? How can a person who's not alive have a God? If you're dead, you're, you don't have a, you're not acknowledging anyone, you're not worshiping anyone, you're not following anyone, you're not obeying anyone, you're just dead. You're a pile of bones, corpse in the ground, you don't have a God. So when God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are relating to me as their God presently, currently, right now. He's saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive presently, right now. I am existing over them, presiding over them, and being worshipped by them currently, right now. Their bodies are buried in the ground, but they are very much alive in my presence, worshipping me. They are my people, and I am their God. So when Jesus says to the Sadducees, that's what God meant. God, God is not the living. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. It's, it's uh, similar to what he says in uh, John chapter 11, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, he shall live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Right? So I get it. I get the story you made up about the woman and the seven brothers. And I get that you've convinced yourself that that proves to you that the resurrection is not true. But, but you're just wrong. Eternity is real. Heaven is real. Resurrection is real. We see it all throughout the Bible. We see it in the New Testament when Jesus talks about it. We see it in the Old Testament, in the wisdom, in the history, in the prophets, the books that the Sadducees rejected. We see it in the Torah. The books that the Sadducees acknowledged, resurrection is real, and it's an integral part of the part of, of the, the Christian worldview, right? This idea that, that when we trust in Christ, we will live with Christ forever and ever. So I want to 
close our time here looking at this story with Jesus and the Sadducees with just two uh, points of application that I think uh, kind of kind of shine out of it at us. And the first is that uh, theology matters. Reading the Bible matters. Learning about the Bible matters. You know, understanding the Bible matters. And thinking uh, right things, believing right beliefs about God and who He is and what He does, those things all matter. At first glance, you read this story and you might think that you know, Jesus is being attacked by a bunch of nerds, and they kind of have their theological hobby horse that they want to talk about. And, and so Jesus is going to, like, you know, shut them down. And he's going to tell them, you know, that, that arguing about the, the in, in the weeds, you know, finer points of theology is, is bad, right? And that's why those people are annoying, right? And our culture today would hear that message and think, yeah, like that's right. Like all, all you need is love. Love is all you need. If you just are nice to people and they're nice to you, we'll all go along to get along. It doesn't really matter what you believe. And, and you don't really have any right to talk to me about what I believe or what I need to believe. Because theology doesn't really just be nice to everyone, accept them for who they are. Don't imply that anything that anyone else believes might be wrong, and we're all good. You'd think that maybe Jesus would respond in that way to this guy based on how he kind of comes up to him and accosts him about this random detail in theology, but he doesn't. Jesus engages this Sadducee, and he makes it a point to show them uh, where his theology has kind of gone astray, where it's defective, and where it's not uh, correct. He, does, he doesn't say, you're a nerd, get a life, get your head out of the books, stop obsessing over theology, it doesn't matter anyway, just be nice to people, and that's all that matters. What he says is, you're believing wrong things about the Bible. You're believing wrong things about God, things that are not true. You need to read your Bible. You need to acknowledge the authority of Scripture. You need to take the Bible at its word. You need to let the Bible speak into your life. You need to stop presuming to stand in judgment over the Bible. And instead, you need to let the Bible stand in judgment over you. Because theology matters. Reading your Bible matters. Studying your Bible matters. Spending time in your Bible matters. Learning what it says and what it implies and what it is calling you to. Those things all matter. It's not just that you read your Bible. Because the Sadducee does read his Bible, right? It's not just that you read the Bible. It's also how you read the Bible, right? This guy would approach the Bible... This guy would approach the Bible like an atheist community college professor, right? Who, like, has no concern with uh, learning from the Bible, obeying the Bible, letting God speak to him through the Bible, right? He wants to come to the Bible so that he can find all of the errors or all of the, you know, contradictions so that he can feel justified in his heart by continuing to be- to rebel against God. He wants to learn trivia so that he can win arguments with people. The Sadducees read the Bible looking for proof texts, right? I'm going to take this verse out of context and use it in some way other than was originally intended so that it can prove my point and make me feel right. God doesn't just want us to read the Bible. He wants us to read the Bible with a heart that's humble and a heart that's teachable and a heart that says, I want to let the Bible, uh, you know, I want to submit to the Bible. I don't want to come to the Bible 
presuming that it should submit to, to me. And the reason why theology matters and the reason why reading the Bible matters is because uh, what we believe about God actually affects who we are and how we live our, our life, right? What we believe about God affects what we feel about God. What we believe about God affects how we live our, our lives, right? Um, what, we, what we feel in our hearts, how our hearts are warmed and excited to love God and feel deeply about Him is informed by what we believe about God. And, and how we obey God's commands and love our neighbors is informed by how we feel about God and what we believe, right? Intellect, emotion, and will. It kind of flows in a fountainhead. What you believe affects what you, how you feel, which affects what you do. Head, heart, hands. Theology, doxology, biography, right? It's kind of intended to flow that way. And so what you think about God and what you believe about God is of profound importance. If you ever heard me telling someone about how much I love my wife, how I felt about her, how warm my heart is toward her, how I love spending time with her, how she's my favorite person, and you heard me describe her as six foot four with blonde hair. That might seem really nice and seem really sweet, like this guy really loves his wife until you met my wife because she's five foot four with brunette hair. So you'd be like, I don't think that guy really loves his wife that much. Because he doesn't know, he doesn't know her. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't think true things about her. He, he is maybe in love with the idea of his wife that he has in his head, but it doesn't comport with reality. We need to obey God as a matter of the will. We need to love God as a matter of the heart. But those things flow out of our theology, what we believe about God and having true doctrine and good theology. That's one point that we take from this, from this text. Theology matters. Reading your Bible matters. Spend time in God's Word. Let it wash over you. Let it affect you. And let it call you to repentance. And then respond with humility and repent accordingly. And the second point is, is uh, basically the, very similar to it, which is that the resurrection matters. Right? That this particular point of theology, the resurrection, matters a lot. It's a critical piece of Christian doctrine that shouldn't be overlooked or minimized. Right? Jesus doesn't uh, answer the question about this woman and these men and then leave uh, unaddressed the underlying issue about the resurrection because the resurrection really matters to Jesus. He cares a lot about it and he cares that we believe right things about it. Right? The fact that Jesus physically, bodily got up out of the grave, he appeared to his disciples, he ascended to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, those things matter. The fact that we will be resurrected with him. Our bodies are going to get up out of the grave, be reunited with our spirit to live with God forever under his rule in the new heavens and the new earth. Those things matter. Evangelical Christianity places a strong, rightly so, places a strong emphasis on the death of Christ on the cross. That's where atonement was made. That's where sin was punished. That's where Jesus suffered in our place. That's where we can be saved from the wrath of Christ. We all agree that the death of Christ is profoundly important, but sometimes we emphasize the death of Christ so much that we run the risk of glossing over the resurrection of Christ and not giving it the weight and the emphasis that it is due. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and he was buried. 
the death of Christ, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Later in the chapter he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then we would be misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection matters. It's not negotiable. It's not an, uh, you know, an add-on. John Stott, put, John Stott wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. The whole book is about the death of Christ on the cross. But he hit on that exact same theme, which he, he kind of uh, catches in one of his chapters. He says, I don't want you to think for a second that because I'm writing this big tomb on the cross and the death of Christ, that it is somehow more important than or that we have minimized the resurrection of Christ. It would be seriously unbalanced to proclaim either the cross without the resurrection, as, as some have done throughout church history, or to proclaim the resurrection without the cross, as do those who present Jesus as their living Lord, but fail to see him as their atoning Savior. Right? The res- so, so the death of Christ is where sin was paid for, God's wrath was uh, assuaged, it was satisfied. But the resurrection is where Jesus' victory over Satan and sin and death was vindicated and assured once and for all. For us to know and and experience deep in our souls and be aware of. Christ's death was sufficient to save, but the resurrection is where it was cemented and established and set in stone to never ever be repealed or questioned forever for all of eternity. We know that we are saved from our sin and we have assurance of salvation for all time because Jesus died on the cross and because Jesus rose from the dead. That's why Jesus responds the way that he does in Luke 20. It's the reason why he doesn't let their theological error go unaddressed and it's the reason why he speaks and stands firm as strong as he does. Because theology matters, what the Bible says matters. And because the resurrection matters. And our calling as the people of God is to live in light of that. To read our Bibles. To believe rightly about God. To trust in the person and work of Christ. His death for sin. His resurrection from the dead. And then to live in light of that reality. That we will enjoy God in heaven for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that the gospel is true. We thank you that the resurrection is real. We thank you that we will live with you forever in your presence, under your rule. And Lord, we pray that we could be faithful to your word. We pray that we could believe true things about you. We pray that we could live in light of your sovereignty. We pray that we could trust you and obey you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.